You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, let's pray and we'll get into our, our passage. We, Father, do set our hope, our trust on Jesus tonight. And Lord, even in a very difficult and dark text, inspired as it may be, I pray that we would see Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, he offers uh, this analogy that demonstrates the power of culture on our convictions and on our affections, the the power of, of social forces. And here's what he says. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now, imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, that's not who I want to be, and will seek deliverance in therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, that's who I am. You see, we naturally, that is naturally, in the flesh, choose to be the selves that our culture tells us we may be. And even if we don't completely give in to all the whims and the impulses of the culture, if our minds are not daily renewed in the Word of God, and we are not immersing ourselves with like-minded, Bible-believing people, counter-cultural believers, there will be an inevitable and progressive giving in to the cultural norms. We're seeing it all over the place, and even in some churches. There's some prominent churches in Atlanta that are giving in to that, very close to us. And we see that today in perhaps the darkest passage outside of the cross in all of Scripture. Now, one of the marks, there are many marks, but one of the marks of the trustworthiness, the infallibility, the inerrancy of of Holy Scripture is the brutal honesty that you find 
in its pages. Even the people of God in its pages are shown with all of their flaws and shameful sins. And and this text is certainly a great example of this. Now, at this point, just for review, back in verse 24 of chapter 19, judgment has fallen on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 24, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Sodom and Gomorrah is a microcosm of what every sin and every sinner deserves. Herman Bovick, in his one-volume work on systematic, says this, Scripture is the book which from beginning to end vindicates God and implicates man. It vindicates God and it implicates man. The implication being, and this comes to our first point, if there's going to be salvation, salvation means it's all of mercy. It's all of mercy. There is no one saved because they bring something to the equation. Look with me in verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning. Now, we haven't read about Abraham for a while, but now he's back. And he went early morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So the last time we saw Abraham, probably within the last 12 hours the night before, he's interceding for for Lot and his family. He's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. What Abraham is learning, there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if there had been 10, God would have spared the city. But as Abraham sees Sodom and Gomorrah subsumed in judgment... We're reminded here that judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. Even if it's delayed, it is certain. Now, it is true that God's patience oftentimes delays judgment, but judgment is sure to come. That's what Peter was dealing with in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. When he writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Incidentally, that's what makes what we did last week. The International Missions Festival, so very important. Judgment is coming And the peoples of the world need to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where judgment has already fallen. But Jonathan Edwards has two sermons on this particular passage. Uh, The title of it was The Folly of Looking Back and Fleeing Out of Sodom. And in that second 
of the two sermons, he directs his attention to unbelievers. He directs his attention to those who have not trusted in where the judgment has already fallen, the Son of God at the cross. And here's what he says. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in a storm of fire and brimstone was but a shadow of the destruction of the ungodly men in hell and is not more to it than a shadow or a picture is to a reality or than painted fire is to real fire. He's saying it's just a shadow of what's going to come on the unrepentant. The misery of hell is set forth by various shadows and images in Scripture as blackness of darkness, a never-dying worm, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire, and brimstone. The reason why so many similitudes are used, that is, so many different images are used, is because none of them alone is sufficient. There's no one image of judgment that is sufficient, he is saying. Anyone does but partly and very imperfectly represent the truth. And therefore, God makes use of many. You have therefore much more need to make haste in your escape. For you are every day and every moment in danger of a thousand times more dreadful storm coming on your heads than that which came on Sodom when the Lord rained brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven upon them. The destruction of which you are in danger is not only greater than the temporal destruction of Sodom, but greater than the eternal destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom. For you who have continued impenitent, that is without repentance, under the glorious gospel, have sinned more and provoked God far more and have greater guilt upon you than the inhabitants of Sodom. The reason he's saying that is because to whom much is given, much is required. We who have been exposed to the gospel are more accountable than even the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Accountability comes with revelation. They were accountable. They experienced judgment. But there's a greater judgment that awaits those who hear the word of God preached week in and week out and never bow the knee to King Jesus. Now, words like this seem very dark. They are dark. But again, in order to celebrate the good news, you have to embrace the bad news. Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, till judgment be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And, and Christ is the sweetness that comes from sin and judgment because he endured the full wrath of the Father for those who would trust him, for those who would believe. Indeed, Calvary was a scene of judgment, a scene of horrible judgment. But Calvary also is a scene of mercy, a scene of mercy. Why? Because at the cross, at Calvary, Jesus interceded for us in his death, taking the wrath that our sin deserved. A far greater intercession and mediation than Abraham could offer the night before judgment fell at Sodom. 
Now, when God sees our sins, as a result, he sees Jesus' mediation instead. And we see this shadowed even here in this passage. Look with me in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. I love that. God remembered Abraham. He'd made covenant with Abraham. It's through Abraham, Abraham's seed, the nations would be saved. But he had also interceded, right? And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. There is nothing to commend Lot to God. We know that. We have seen this. There is nothing in Lot that is worthy of salvation. But God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. Beautiful. Now, this is essentially a summary statement, verse 29, of the entire Sodom narrative in one sentence. And and what Moses is stressing here primarily is the activity of God throughout this account. He's the one who judged the cities. It wasn't some natural calamity. It was God who judged the cities. He's the one who remembered Abraham. He's the one who rescued Lot. So Lot and his family were spared ultimately by God's mercy. God's mercy alone. But instrumentally, through the prayers of Abraham. What should that remind us to do? Every single one of you have burdens for a lost family member or a, a lost friend, a, a, a lost coworker, a lost neighbor, a lost classmate. And you have prayed, but you haven't seen any results. And we see in this passage that God responds to our prayers for salvation. Keep praying. Keep persevering. Come on Wednesday night. If you're not in choir, if you're not in ESL, or if you're not in orchestra, come Wednesday night and do business with God. God remembered Abraham, and he saved Lot and his family. Again, though both Abraham and Lot are believers... And if we didn't have 2 Peter 2, we, there's no way on earth we would believe that Lot was a believer. But we know that he is. He is as justified before God as Abraham is. So both of them are believers, but Moses is contrasting them as well. He's contrasting Abraham and Lot to drive home a point. Remember, Israel is making their way into the promised land. They have been redeemed, just like Lot was redeemed. They have been redeemed out of slavery. They're going into their inheritance. And he is contrasting these two to make a point to them. Yes, Abraham's mediation is one of a kind. He represents, he points us, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's also an example to us of the pilgrim spirit that God commends. And Lot is an example to us of the devastation when this world becomes too comfortable for you, 
when you make this world your home. Remember, Abraham, chapter 18, verse 1, had sat at the door of his tent. And we saw at the beginning of this chapter, Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason Abraham did this, the writer of Hebrews tells us, chapter 11, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was, was detached in a very real sense. He was detached from what this world has to offer. He knew there was a better life to come, and that had weaned him. Uh, he had been weaned off of the temporal vanities by being wooed to that better city, that better home. Lot, on the other hand, and I went to the game yesterday, but you can say this to every person who went to any game yesterday in any college town, college stadium, Lot, on the other hand, was enthralled. He was enthralled with the here and now. He was enthralled with, with Sodom. And it had appeared to work for a while. He's sitting in the gates. It had appeared to work until it didn't. Until it didn't. Lot, the believer, was worldly. He was worldly. Now, what is worldliness? Worldliness is, is kind of a, a sleepiness of the soul, a, a dullness of the soul in which the, the status and the, and the pleasures and the, and the comforts and the cares of this life see so stunning and real. And the promises and the precepts of God seem like mere abstractions to you, unable to grip your heart. That's worldliness. And, and we see here the fallout. There is a fallout in his life. Yes, he was delivered, but there were consequences even as he was delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. Incidentally, this is the last time we'll read about Lot in the Old Testament because he no longer is a part of this grand and glorious story. He's lost his legacy. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, one of the darkest texts in all the Bible. So we've seen that salvation means it was all of mercy. But in the last part of this passage, the last part of chapter 19, we see salvation does not mean there aren't consequences to our worldliness. Look with me in verse 30. So you can have forgiveness, you can be delivered, but there's also consequences, right? It's kind of like if you have your knee torn up, uh, you can have your knee uh, surgically repaired, but there's scar tissue. And we start to see it here. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor. Some people pronounce it Zoar. And lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. The text does not tell us why he was afraid. At one time, he wanted to go to Zor. Maybe there's still tremors there, or maybe it's too close to Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't tell us why. 
But he ends up in a cave with his two daughters. So he's gone from the gates of the city where it looked like his worldliness was inconsequential to now he's in a cave. Uh, Maybe some of you remember I tested (laughs) Monty on this on Friday and he passed the test. Maybe some of you remember a song from 1972 called The Troglodyte, The Caveman by the Jimmy Castor Bunch. Uh, Billboard ranked it the number 80, uh, 80th song of, of the year. Well, perhaps Jimmy Castor was reflecting on this passage because you have Lot here in a cave, the caveman. And, and, and so sometimes, sometimes the godless prosper in this life. Scripture's very honest about that. Read Psalm 73, verses 3 to 12. Sometimes the godless, the wicked, the scoffers prosper in this life. If you're on a ball team, the godless uh, teammate may have uh, a better career than you. If you're in a classroom, the godless student may make better grades than you. The, the wicked student or, or wicked graduate may get a better job than you. And it, it may be you to reason, where is God in all of this? Well, the scripture is very clear about that. You know, the psalmist said, until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. All right, Psalm 73. Sometimes the godless prosper in this life. Sometimes the godless face severe consequences in this life because of their godlessness. They suffer in the here and now. This text certainly tells us that. Judgment reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. But never, never has a believer prospered in sin in this life. Never. Here's why because of the disciplining hand of God and the pruning knife of the vine dresser. Yeah, they may make their money and get their promotions, but they really aren't flourishing. It's impossible for believers to flourish with sin in their lives. And we see this with Lot. Verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, this was a foolish statement in itself because the whole world had not died. But that just shows you how upside down their thinking was. And though Moses never explicitly condemns their actions, we do know that he inscripturated Uh, He wrote the law as God gave it to him, and these actions are clearly condemned in texts like Leviticus 18. We'll come back to that later. And it's also telling that we don't ever know Lot's daughter's names. Moses doesn't tell us. So that is telling in itself. Verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. 
So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So you see, there's the motivation. They want a, a line of, of offspring. Also, it would be their security when they, when they are older. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Now, incest is unequivocally condemned in Scripture. Leviticus 18, uh, verses 6 to 18, prohibits all forms of incest. And remember, Paul actually rebukes the Corinthian church for failing to exercise discipline on a man who had uh, relations with his, his stepmother. But this reminds us, even if most people will never be brought to this place, this extreme kind of wickedness, it reminds us of the power of culture. The power of the social imaginary, what the culture deems as lawful. If we are not renewing our minds, it becomes normal to us so that, again, the fish doesn't know it's wet. And so Sodom and Gomorrah was obviously well on their way in what you might call a sexual revolution just like the United States have been since the, the early 1960s. And, and the girls, the daughters of Lot had clearly been infected by that sexual revolution. John Currid writes this in his commentary. This story is a powerful warning regarding how Christians are to raise their children. Lot had thrown his daughters into the heart of paganism. The consequences should surprise no one. But it also reminds us when the Lord is not the one who defines us and we, 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 we have a, a God replacement. In this case, what defined them was having a seed, was having, was having children, was having a legacy, having security when they were of old age when something other than the Lord defines us and that becomes our little L Lord, we will do what we have to do to the point of extremities, extremities to, to serve that Lord. That's the power and the consequences of idolatry. And the, notice in verse 37, 38, as we come to the end of this text, the firstborn, firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his, his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Amorites this day. So Moab means from the father. Ben-Ami means son from the kinsman. The Moabites and the Ammonites would be perpetual thorns in Israel's sides. 
Um, the Moabites fought Israel during the time of the judges. And remember, to fight Israel was to be in rebellion to their God as they were a theocracy. Uh, they fought against Saul. They fought against David. Solomon took a Moabite wife and began to worship his Moabite wife's God, Chemosh, 1 Kings 11. As for the Ammonites, they were constantly at war with the, the Israelites as well. Later, Solomon included an Ammonite woman in his harem, and he worshiped the Ammonite gods, Molech and Chemosh. In the days of Jehoshaphat, the Ammonites and the Moabites raided Judah. And after they returned from, from exile, 70 years in exile, Tobiah the Ammonite hindered the, the rebuilding of, of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. And so evil were the Moabites and so evil were the Ammonites that Amos pronounces a judgment, a destruction on both of these groups. But what are the lessons as we close here from this dark text? These are not comprehensive, but let me offer you some, some lessons as we close out this passage. First of all, and we've had some issues on the screen, so I don't know if all of these are on there. We'll see. We'll see how good Zach is tonight. <laughs> We's awesome. Worldliness is destructive. Worldliness is destructive. That's the most obvious. Worldliness is destructive. When the precepts and the promises of God are mere abstractions and they don't stir you, they don't move you, and the things of this world seem stunning and more real to you, you're worldly. And worldliness is destructive. And with Lot, it didn't occur in a vacuum. As early as Genesis 13, he's looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's appealing to him. It's appealing to his flesh. And instead of turning away from it, he's drifting to it. He's moving towards it. And you see that progression that we have brought out through this study. He departed. In fact, it was so important to him. Get this. He departed from the covenant people of God, Abraham. He, he, a modern day equivalent would be a, a believer who, who has become so worldly that they're at best loosely affiliated with the church because something had moved them away. Doesn't even have to be something as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. It could be sports. Second lesson is a father's compromise has devastating effects on his children. That's just an obvious application of this passage. A father's compromise has devastating effects on his children. If I asked you, every single one of you could give me an example of that. Not necessarily of your father, but someone that you know. To how many generations do the effects of a father's sin extend? I don't know the answer to that question but it's multi-generational. Third, 
Now, keep in mind, and this is an important point here, we see in this passage how the evil one can employ alcohol abuse to bring devastation. Now, why is this important to Israel? This isn't arbitrary. Well, we know the answer better now than we ever have. Because in 1929 in northern Syria, they found through some archaeological find and, and, and digs that alcohol was employed in Canaanite worship, which also included sexual perversity to commune with the gods. So remember, Abraham was primarily, he's writing this first to a people who are going to be exposed to Canaanite worship, which involves alcohol abuse and a common fruit. And you can just ask a lot of college students about this and high school students. A common fruit of alcohol abuse is sexual sin. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Get this, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality. Scripture has a lot to say about alcohol abuse, drunkenness, inebriation, People who persist in drunkenness, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Brother Al preached on this last December, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're, if you're an unrepentant person, and that involves, that can involve drunkenness or any other sin, slander for that matter, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture also warns that Drunkenness, inebriation is, is destructive. It's perilous. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Drunkenness destroys proper judgment. Isaiah 28, verse 7. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They stumble in giving judgment. Drunkenness. Alcohol abuse causes troubles. Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Those who tarry longer or tarry long over wine. Drunkenness destroys sexual perception. Isaiah 5, 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. You, you cannot be spiritually attentive and intimate with God under the dominion of the vine. And then finally, as we see here in this passage, drunkenness is humiliating. Lot is forever humiliated. Fourth, although 
All sins can be forgiven because God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, Romans 5, 20. Including the sin of incest. All sin can be forgiven because of what God has secured for us in Jesus. Some sins can forever tarnish our legacy. That's a warning to us. By the way, warnings are, are loving, right? You've never accused a warning sign on the side of the road of being harsh. I remember being stopped by a policeman one time, and I said, can you give me a warning? And he said, the warning's on the sign. I didn't have much to say after that. But the sign is kind, right? So that's a warning to us. You can be forgiven. Certain sins can forever tarnish your legacy, your name. It can bring consequences that, that you will keep until the day of your death. And then fifth, even in this wicked act, and it was wicked, mercy and grace prevail. Again, I've said this before, there are illegitimate relationships, all right? You know, if a believer is unequally yoked to an unbeliever, that's an illegitimate relationship. Sex outside of marriage is an illegitimate relationship. Adultery, illegitimate relationship, all right? Although there are illegitimate relationships, there has never been an illegitimate child, there has never been an illegitimate child. Every child, what did Ed teach us this morning? God works all things together for the good. He can take sin and bring out something glorious and beautiful. He doesn't cause the sin, but he's sovereign over the sin. And so there are no illegitimate children. All children are image bearers and have the worth and the dignity of an image bearer. Incidentally, did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has Moabite blood? Did you know he has Ammonite blood? You think your family's dysfunctional. So think about this. Ruth, that book that we cherish, she was a Moabite. She was the fruit of this illegitimate relationship. And she eventually would have a great grandson. And his name would be David. And David, as Ed taught us this morning, from the line of Judah, would point us to one who's greater than him. And Ruth would be included in Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know Jesus also had Ammonite blood? I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name. N-A-A-M-A-H. Nama was one of Solomon's concubines. She was an Ammonite. And she bore a son, and his name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was not a good king. But if you turn over to Matthew 1, he's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so even with this most heinous of sins, we see God's mercy, God's grace prevailing. That's what mercy can do. It can change your family line. It can change an entire family line. Indeed, that mercy would come through the veins of one who had Moabite and Ammonite blood. That's the kind of Savior that we have. Again, what man intended for evil, God works for good. As Adam and the musicians come forward, my prayer is that this passage has encouraged you because I have a feeling that though it's very possible you've not seen this kind of sin in your family, maybe so, I have a feeling everybody here has regrets, right? And so if God can be merciful in this most heinous of situations, greater to lesser, there is mercy. There's mercy at the cross. And so even as you sing tonight, I want you to reflect on that mercy, reflect on that grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you recognize tonight, I, I need that mercy because I have messed up. I've not done what Lot did. I've not done what Lot's daughter's done, but I've done enough. I deserve the same judgment that was poured out on Sodom and poured out on Gomorrah. And I need a savior. We would love to pray with you. Won't you come tonight and respond to that gospel message as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we wanna start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.